Lowell Bergman helped found the Center for Investigative Reporting in 1977. He's currently a professor at the Graduate School of Journalism. His essay on international arms dealers opens that web discussion of this rogues gallery of weapons merchants. Lowell Bergman is an award-winning investigative reporter and correspondent producer for both Frontline and the New York Times. He's been an editor at Rolling Stone, director of investigative reporting at ABC News, and was a producer at CBS's 60 Minutes for 14 years. Mr. Bergman's reporting in print and broadcasting has earned him, among other things, a Pulitzer Prize, three Peabody Awards, a Polk Award, and five DuPont Columbia University silver and gold batons. For 15 years now, he has taught a Graduate School of Journalism seminar on investigative reporting, which factored into the Frontline program on gun runners. We are delighted to have him join us today. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Lowell Bergman. Nice to be here. You note in your, your introduction to this rogues gallery that was in the, on the web of these arms merchants um, that these dealers sometimes operate with government approval, sometimes without. Do you have an idea of what percentage of these deals are really government operations where these guys are basically acting as middlemen to keep the government's fingerprints off the weapons? Well, it depends on which government, in other words. Ordinarily, most weapons are supplied by a government or with government approval. In the United States... Uh, and in most countries in, that belong to the United Nations and various agreements, in order to ship weapons from one country to another, it requires what's called an end-use certificate. That's a piece of paper from the receiving country that says that the weapons that you're shipping won't go any further. So, for example, when Saddam Hussein wanted weapons in the 1980s, he was under embargo by the United Nations when he was at war with Iran. To get weapons, he needed an end-use certificate. The way he did that was he got the government of Jordan, a neighbor, to provide through their royal army end-use certificates to the French, to the Chileans, to all kinds of countries, Austria, and they would ship the weapons to Jordan and then it would go on to Iraq. So when you're talking about large shipments of weapons, generally speaking, they require the complicity of one or more governments. Yeah, I know in the case of uh, Victor Boot, he's got friends in high places in the Soviet government, and, and you had actually an interview on the web with Sarkis Soganalian, who seems to be more of the U.S. favorite player. Well, Sarkis is actually was a major arms dealer. He's actually not doing very well from a business point of view these days. Um, he was very active, particularly from the early 70s through the mid-90s, uh, although I guess his last famous exploit was that he supplied weapons to um, a a gentleman in Peru named Vladimiro Montesinos, who was the security chief in Peru, uh, and the weapons wound up with a FARC, and so it turned out that Sarkis had shipped them from Jordan to Peru. He claimed with the uh, approval of the CIA in Amman. In any of these situations, the weapons are usually manufactured by government or government contractors. Moving the weapons takes some degree of government cooperation or the corruption of government officials, to get them from the supplying country out of that country. And then where they're going, that's also a question of whether or not other governments are involved. Generally speaking, though, as I said, the governments are either officially or unofficially aware of what's going on. And these, these numbers, you know, rather, are, are rather staggering. 550 million small arms in circulation, uh, really more, much more deadly in the aggregate than more sophisticated weapons like planes and ships that we, we read about. Non-government organizations or non-profit organizations that track the international tr uh, movement of weapons point out that something like an AK-47 is a particularly durable item. In other words, once they're produced, they're very difficult to get rid of. They get resold. They last for a long time. And, in fact, 
uh, Yemen is well known as a uh, an international kind of bazaar for AK-47s. They're sold and resold, various various models, various ages. It's it's a big industry in that country itself. Well, according to your website, at least one of these five rogues you profiled, it's John Bernard Luznaud, I guess, uh, I'm pronouncing that correctly, was arrested shortly after the report was published. But he'd been living in Florida for years before that, despite a standing Interpol request the governments arrest him, and it was the Swiss of all people who took him into custody. Can you, can you talk about that? Well, in that particular situation, I think it's because there was some publicity that he wound up on the Interpol list. You know, there's got to be a push from some country to apprehend somebody, and in many cases, an arms dealer in particular, uh, like other kinds of brokers, can be of great use to a government, even if they may not like what he stands for or who he is. They do provide a level of insulation. So, for example, uh, you can find arms dealers. I believe one of the other guys profiled there is Manzar al Qasar. Mm-hmm. He was recently arrested in Spain on an indictment out of, out of uh, New York. He's been sought, particularly by the Drug Enforcement Administration, for many decades. Now, Manzer is a, is a uh, Syrian citizen, uh, very close to the leadership of the PLO, uh, was in fact indicted at one point for supplying the weapons to the Achille Loro hijackers. At the same time, he was the main arms supplier for Ali North in the Iran-Contra scandal or, or deals, if you will. He was the one supplying small arms from Eastern Europe by ship to go to the Contras. So you often find that these guys are used by more than one side. Although in Sarkis's case, for instance, he would like to say, or did say for many years, that he tended towards the U.S. position. Of course, if there was enough money involved, <laughs> uh, he could figure out rationales to maybe not exactly do what the U.S. wanted. In terms of Lesnod, and he obviously wasn't arrested for very long. I was noodling around on the web, and there seemed to be a site where he was selling a Bell helicopter, at least as of last year. The, the charges that he was picked up on related to some arms deals that have involving Ecuador and Argentina. There were some dead bodies that were inconvenient, apparently, that showed up during the deals. And so while there was a, a warrant out for his arrest, the actual evidence in order to get someone to prosecute it made it a very difficult case. So five years on from your frontline piece, uh, are things pretty much the same, better, worse? Well, it depends on what you mean by better or worse. Remember that the United States and the, and the, the old Soviet Union, Russia, are still the world's largest suppliers of military weapons worldwide. Uh, recently, there was a, uh, some publicity out of Britain that they sold tens of billions of dollars worth of fire aircraft to Saudi Arabia in a deal done back in the 1980s, and the price of that deal was a $2 billion bribery kickback to Prince Bandar the then ambassador from Saudi Arabia to the United States. So these kinds of deals, government-to-government deals involving corruption on one level or another, uh, or involving free, if you will, freewheeling merchants in between, they're part of the lifeblood of international conflict, and I think you'd find some of these people active uh, doing things today, wherever you see any kind of armed conflict going on. Uh, you helped found the Center for Investigative Reporting 30 years ago, and this frontline piece was co-produced by the Center. Can you talk about the group and what it's accomplished in the last three decades? Well, the Center for Investigative Reporting has done stories on everything from the, uh, the export of uh, banned pesticides overseas and their return to the United States on the food that we eat, uh, to investigations of arms dealers, to work for 60 Minutes for Frontline, uh, lots of independent production of uh, publications of books, both about investigative reporting, uh, about the Japanese organized crime group, the Yakuza. 
you can go to their website, uh, which I believe is www.muckraker.org, and and see a, a, a layout of what they've done. I've actually not had a formal relationship with them except on a story basis for at least 25 years, and, and uh, to my uh, actual personal satisfaction, they're not only around, but they seem to be thriving. We certainly uh, want to give an attaboy to the muckrakers of the world. Uh, we were talking to Stephen Braun last week about the publicity that seemed to have helped curtail the operations of some people. Victor Boot had been sort of hemmed in a little bit by some of the publicity he'd None of these gotten. people like publicity, you know? I mean, it would be like um, a drug dealer getting publicity. It's not good for business. <laughs> Well, the press has been criticized of late, deservedly so, we think, for uh, for its, its lack of zeal in investigating some important matters. The, the, the ramp up to the war in Iraq comes to mind and selling of the WMD issues by the administration. Uh, you obviously have some strong feelings about some thorough reporting. What do you think of the, the current state of the press? Well, you could look at a four-and-a-half-hour documentary series that I participated in for Frontline that ran in February. You can get that. It probably should. And so that's you know it's a, that's a that's a question with a very long answer, but briefly the press is in an, in a very unusual, uh, perfect storm at the moment. It's under assault by this administration in terms of prosecuting it or by special prosecutors after their confidential sources or the leak investigations that are going on related to national security reporting. At the same time, the traditional establishment press that many people have come to rely on over the last 35 years, which in a sense became more professionalized in the 70s and 80s, is now in decline. And the economic model that supported that professionalization, that standard that you like to criticize the press if they don't reach that standard, that economic model for it is dissolving. And so no one really knows where all of this is going to end. You, you do know that if you were a journalism student right now, it was always uh, not possible to make a lot of money by going into the journalism business, into the reporting business. Right now, the difficulty would be finding a job that, you could, that could support you. And in terms of investigative reporting or in-depth reporting or reporting that challenges the prevailing points of view, that requires resources. And those resources aren't going to be around much longer, it looks like. Yeah, I was stunned in preparing for this this talk with you to listen to the interview with Terry Gross recently where the, you, you talked about something like 85% of the news is really driven by newspaper reporting, but newspapers are in trouble. Well, just look at the web. Those of you who, who get on the Internet, you know, most of the information on the web is recycled information that's been dug up by reporters or written about by writers working for traditional outlets, primarily newspapers. And that information and the, and the providing of new information every day requires economic resources. That's why you see things like NPR expanding with its audience, because as you may have noticed, regular radio doesn't do very much news reporting. And while NPR does some news gathering, like a newspaper, it's really dependent on newspapers as well to find out what's going on. Now, if the newspaper industry is cutting back international coverage, closing bureaus, not able to sustain a professional staff out there. And I'm not defending all newspapers. Some of them haven't done a very good job over the years, but others have. Then you can see that the, that the ability to get independent, verifiable information that's produced at a certain standard, a certain level, that that's shrinking our ability to do that. And that's a crisis. Yes, I was quite stunned hearing that discussion that a Wall Street analyst was saying, well, gee, you know, we have the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, USA Today, why should the L.A. Times bother with a foreign bureau? Haven't we got that pretty well dialed in? <laughs> Very scary. Well, it may be scary to you, but it's the reality. Remember, 
There are only, I believe, three newspaper organizations in the United States with full-time bureaus in Iraq. Forty years ago in Vietnam, there were hundreds of U.S. reporters on the ground. And it's not just the, the reporting difficulties in Iraq, it's the cost of doing it. But in general, around the world, most of, most U.S. news organizations, not the New York Times, but most, uh, let's say, network news organizations today, they'll cover all of South America from Miami. They'll cover most of Africa from London. So that's what's going on today. You talked about how it's difficult to make a, make a career in journalism, but I, I, it's, it's something we need people to do. Do you have any words of encouragement for the buddling journalists maybe here in the area, UC Davis and California State University, Sacramento? Well, the most encouraging part about the business, and the best example I can give is me. I started out outside of the normal journalism track out as a student, as a graduate student, and then dropped out as a graduate student back in 1969. You still have the First Amendment. You have a lot of advantages we didn't have then. You have instant distribution on the Internet. Uh, you have an ability. You have an infinite news hall. So you've got those those uh, questions answered for you, and probably technologically it will more and more of this convergence will also allow you to do more and more video as well as, as print as we go forward. More people will have that. So that part of the story, I think, will uh, in terms of just having the ability to do that, is a big step forward. The big question is, go out and find a story. Well, there's an old line that Scoop Nisker used to be on the radio here doing the news. I don't know. Maybe he's still on KFOG. Um, Scoop used to say, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. And what I'd say to people out there who want to be journalists, if you don't like the stories you're reading, go find a good one and do it. Lowell Bergman's a producer correspondent for Frontline, an investigative reporter for the New York Times, and a professor at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. His 2002 Frontline on Gun Runners is accessible through the Internet. Lowell Bergman, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Anyway, before we close this segment, I would like to augment what you've just heard uh, by the startling observation that an awful lot of what you're seeing on, uh, on cable television appears to be um, sponsored by arms dealers. I don't know. Some of what I saw on the History Channel was kind of disturbing. Uh, you know, unfortunately, my mind is blanking on exactly uh, what it was that was offending me last week. I'm sure it wasn't the look at Nostradamus, which is such a load of bull. But uh, I did note the National Geographic Channel earlier this week aired a special which was titled The War to Iraq. Now, you, you know, you expect the National Geographic Channel to produce some quality material, but, you know, like the History Channel, some of what you see on a Saturday night is pretty disturbing. Uh, case in point, here's a description of the road to war Iraq. This examination of the diplomatic process that led from the diplomatic process that led from 9-11 to the invasion of Iraq features new interviews with a number of Bush administration insiders who witnessed it firsthand. These include White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card, ex-Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage, former Defense Policy Board Chairman Richard Pearl, former Dick Cheney aide Mary Madeline, and former speechwriter David Frum. Now, this is basically the Bush administration's viewpoint on how you connect the dots between 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq. Now, certainly on one level, it would be curious to hear what the architects of, uh, of the war in Iraq and our, and our foreign policy have to say about how we got there. But, uh, you know, and this is simply presented as, quote, an examination of the diplomatic process that led from 9-11 to the invasion of Iraq is just inherently misleading. To even call it a diplomatic process is, is, is rather ludicrous. 
In the fall of 2002, on this program, we were talking about the drum beat to war. We kept satirically playing that song from the Marx Brothers classic, Duck Soup, Fredonia's Going to War, saying, we're going to go to a war, and we're going to go to war in Iraq, in spite of the fact that they're saying it, uh, it might happen. No, we told you it was going to happen, and it did. We also told you five years ago that this had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks, and now it seems that the whole mainstream media has, uh, well, discovered that, gee, looking back on it, it, it doesn't appear that the war in Iraq does have any direct connection to 9-11 now, does it? You know, we're not trying to lay claim to the fact that we're the only ones out there that were, were expressing skepticism, but, uh, you know, it, it does appear in retrospect that the most startling thing about our current war in Iraq is that there were fewer voices speaking up in opposition to this ridiculous conflict we've gotten ourselves embroiled in in Iraq. And it's just great that the Democratic Party is uh, talking about how, well, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. You know, John Edwards, who voted to authorize the war. John Kerry, who voted to authorize the war. Hillary Clinton, who voted to authorize the war. And didn't Barack Obama also vote to authorize this war? We'll, We'll look that one up. But the guy I'm most disappointed in, Dennis Kucinich. Spoke here in Davis at the Varsity Theater. Has a lot of very good things to say, but is currently claiming in his fundraising drive that he voted against this war. He did not. He abstained. That's not the same as voting against it. Now, we, we like Dennis Kucinich. He appeared on this program. We, uh, we wish him well, but, you know, Congressman Kucinich, you gotta quit saying that. Anyway, reportedly tonight on the David Letterman program, Senator Hillary Clinton is scheduled to appear. Might be worth checking out. Anyway, you're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break and come back and talk about a fantastic exhibit currently over at the State Fair at Cal Expo. 